I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Rachel Fay and Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley of Power to Decide. Power to Decide is an organization that works to advance sexual and reproductive well-being, and they've just released an interactive map which tracks the ever-changing and chaotic landscape of abortion access before and after the Dobbs decision which overturned Roe v. Wade. This tool, the interactive map, it really illuminates just how quickly abortion access worsened following the Dobbs decision last year. And I'll provide a link to the map in today's show notes. But in this conversation with Rachel and Dr. Reagan, we take a deep dive into that data and we talk about what the Dobbs decision has meant practically for people seeking abortion care and what their lives have been like. And we talk about how we can restore abortion access nationally. And honestly, restoring abortion access, it's not going to be an easy or a quick journey. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel Fay and Dr. Reagan from Power to Decide. So Dr. Reagan, Rachel Fay, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. You know, so this year would have marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And of course, that's the Supreme Court decision that granted us the right to choose whether to have an abortion or not. And I wanted to simply state what Roe v. Wade granted, because I've noticed that over the years, the definition of Roe v. Wade has kind of been muddied by the public debate. So I just wanted to be clear about what we would have expected under Roe v. Wade. But, you know, the Dobbs decision came down, you know, last summer. And if you had asked me five years ago if I thought that abortion rights were in danger, I would have said absolutely, right? The writing's on the wall. But if you'd asked me if Roe would not make it to his 50th anniversary, I would have said, of course, of course it will, right? I did not see the Dobbs decision coming, or at least I saw it coming, but I was still blindsided by it. And I think a lot of us were. So I just want to talk about your organization's project because you have a really good project tracking what's happened since the Dobbs decision. And it's an interactive map. And I love this map, by the way. It's really brilliant. It tracks the abortion access landscape across the country. And you can see how the abortion access has been eroded since the Dobbs decision last summer. So I'll just pose the first question to you, Dr. Reagan. The interactive map, I think it starts, it gives a snapshot at the very beginning of, I think, spring of last year, right? And it seems like a lot of states were making changes or bans even, even before the Dobbs leak happened. So what was the landscape like? last spring. Yes. Thank you again so much for having us. And thank you for this important discussion and for the opportunity to imagine the world pre-Dobbs, right? And the reality is that abortion was accessible in most parts of the United States, but largely it still depended even then on where someone lived. For example, in Texas, abortion has been largely restricted since the fall of 2021. And so abortion has been under attack for a long period of time. In fact, we know just in the last five years alone, there have been more state restrictions and bans on abortion than ever before since Roe was passed in 1973. So, you know, while we are all mourning the loss of Roe, it's important to note that abortion access has been under attack for a long time. And I think it's even more important to realize that Roe was never enough. And so, you know, obviously we'll get to sort of next steps in reimagining and re-envisioning. And, and, and I hope we do have that conversation. And when we do, we have to do it better because Roe was never enough for real tangible access for everyone across the country. So, you know, I've heard that a lot, that Roe was never enough. But can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been, you know, again, a huge number of state level bans and attacks and targeted restrictions against abortion providers, otherwise known as trap laws passed over the last five to 10 years that have really eroded and winnowed access in many places. 
And these laws looked like, you know, 72 hour waiting periods in Missouri or, you know, certain requirements for people to be read inaccurate information about the risks of abortion, restrictions and requirements on how medication abortion was provided, restrictions and requirements on the physical space required for abortion access, nothing that really was correlated with outcomes and patient safety, but reported to do so that were passed in many states that caused it to be very, very difficult in many of these places for people to access abortion. And this was all pre-Dobbs, right? And so then Dobbs happens and some states further restrict abortion access and many, many states completely ban access, meaning that huge swaths of the country now have no access whatsoever and people have to travel hundreds and sometimes even thousands of miles to obtain basic health care that should be accessible in their own community. I just wanted to add that all of what Dr. Reagan just talked about was on top of something called the Hyde Amendment, which was initially added to annual federal spending three years after Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, so in 1976, and has banned public insurance that is federally funded from covering abortion care ever since. So Dr. Reagan's point about, you know, abortion access, depending on where you live, for roughly half the states, their Medicaid programs did not cover abortion. The other half would cover abortion care with their state dollars. And so because of this, where you lived not only determined whether you faced this myriad of restrictions, it also was determinant of whether or not you could afford abortion care. And more than half of the people who depended on Medicaid in states that did not cover abortion were women of color. So this impact was also not falling universally. It was really disproportionately harming certain people. And so we do know that it's been under attack for decades, right, since Roe became the law of the land, right? It's under attack and it's been eroding. But I feel like over the past couple of years, particularly in 2022, like things really accelerated. I remember when the decision in Oklahoma, which was, you know, an outright ban, we were all kind of panicking, right? It was HB 4327. Like, what do you make of, you know, that ban happening and just things kind of accelerating in 2022, even before the Dobbs decision came down, even before the leak even? Were they doing this in anticipation of the Dobbs decision? Like, What was happening there? I mean, I certainly think that they anticipated that. They perceived a shift in federal courts, particularly the Supreme Court. And, you know, it can take a long time for those cases to work their way up to the Supreme Court. So a lot of attempts that we've seen over the years are designed to challenge Roe. What I think is so notable about the Dobbs decision is that only a few years earlier, a court with a slightly different makeup had uh, struck down a gestational ban. And so we don't, you know, and other kinds of bans that would have very clearly violated Roe. So I think for those of us in this community, we knew from the minute that that the decision was made by the court to take the Dobbs case, that the only reason to do so is if they were going to rule differently. And I think that that was the agenda of many of the folks who filed cases in a variety of different courts for years leading up to the decision. Right. So they were counting on us not having time to react and in anticipation of the Dobbs decision coming. Yes, and they were counting on a favorable makeup of the court. So, Dr. Reagan, I don't know if you want to answer this, but what happened after the first 48 hours, the first two days following the Dobbs decision? Because things went pretty quickly after that. Yeah, it was complete chaos at first because people didn't know what this meant. There were some states that had sort of old laws that were already on the books from pre-Roe days, and people didn't know if those laws would be enacted In some states, it was clear that those laws would be enacted, but there was a waiting period or the district attorney in that state had to take 
some action for it to come into place. And so the initial reaction was just complete chaos for people providing abortions in those states and for folks trying to interpret these laws. And it left a a really troubling period of time where people who were pregnant and seeking abortion access in those states didn't know if they'd be able to obtain abortion access and providers didn't know if they were able to provide it. So that's in part why we've been working very hard to keep our resource abortionfinder.org up to date not only working with colleagues in our ecosystem to interpret these laws, but also actually calling the clinics every day and finding out if they're actually providing care, right? Because they're sort of what the law says and then also how it's interpreted and then what's happening on the ground. And so this really vital resource provides accurate, up-to-date information about what's happening in each state across the country, where abortion access is still accessible, where it is not, and what the laws are surrounding this whole scenario. So did you have calls from actual abortion providers kind of wondering where they fit into the landscape? Were they unsure of whether they could provide abortions or not? Yes. I mean, just that first weekend after the Dobbs decision came down, right? You can imagine that in emergency rooms across the country, people were walking in as they do every weekend, pregnant and bleeding, needing care for early pregnancy management. And the providers who were taking care of them didn't know what they could do, right? Do they have to wait until the person's bleeding so much that their life is threatened? Who determines that? And sort of, you know, if you wait to that point until someone's life is threatened, they might need such level of medical care that it's hard to treat them or to save them. Or do they have to wait until there's no quote unquote heartbeat, which is really just electrical activity of a clump of cells that could eventually turn into a heart But it was pure chaos for everyone. And this is, you know, unfortunately continuing to go on every day where people are waking up and needing care and they're not sure where to go. And also providers aren't sure if they're able to provide that care. And so it's not surprising that what we're seeing is an increase in maternal mortality and morbidity and pregnancy-related complications, particularly in states that have restricted and banned abortions. Have we been able to track that? I mean, is that quantifiable at this point? Because it's been less than a year, frankly. (laughs) Things have happened really quickly. I mean, is someone tracking, you know, the rate of maternal mortality in relation to the Dobbs decision coming down? Yeah. So folks have been tracking this for some time, even just looking at states that have already, you know, highly restricted abortion compared to states where it's readily available in the pre-Dobbs days. And that research has found, in particular, that rates of maternal morbidity and mortality are much higher, as well as complications for for newborns in those states. And of course, we're going to be tracking this data, and there's going to be research happening to further evaluate this. But the outcome is clear. It's devastating, and it disproportionately impacts women of color and people who are struggling to make ends meet. And it's important to note that 7 out of 10 Black women live in states where there is a ban or a restriction. So again, will disproportionately impact Black women and families. But we know the direct link and through line to increases in maternal mortality and morbidity. In addition to the actual data that we're seeing, there have been very well done studies by demographers estimating what the impact will be. And one study showed that there could be a 20% increase overall in maternal mortality, which is already terrible in our country, and up to 30% higher for Black people. Right. I think we have one of the worst rates among like Western countries. I mean, considering, you know, we're supposed to have advanced modern medicine here, like we have one of the worst rates of maternal mortality. We have one of the worst rates and that rate is three times higher for black women in this country. And and what we you know, what is very clear is that this will absolutely worsen in this post-ops era across our country. Yeah. I just want to state for the record, because it's kind of unbelievable when you hear it out loud. This has all happened in less than a year. 
Like really, it's all accelerated, you know, within six months, right? Because this is why the interactive map is so important. Because if you look at it and you, there's a slider on it, and I'll link to the map in the show notes, but if you use the slider, you can see just how quickly things have happened. But if you look at, let's say like last April, if you go all the way back to last April, there was at least one abortion provider in all 50 states. <laughs> and if you go to December of 2022, if you slide down to December, like it looks like a good third of the map is highlighted as, you know, states not having an abortion provider. So I think how many states now don't have an abortion provider, not a single abortion provider? And Rachel, do you know? Yeah, it's 14 states that have no clinics offering abortion care. And that's just heartbreaking. It's also something that's causing a huge strain on providers in other states because those who are able to travel, that, you know, the bandwidth, the capacity is not there necessarily to take all that additional patient load. It's critical right now. I think we're seeing sort of a, a hobbling of the entire care network. Yeah. And another thing that I noticed when I was looking at the map is that even before it started happening, even before Dobbs, there are quite a few states that had fewer than five providers, right? Now, I live in a state, I live in Washington state, where it's pretty progressive. We are one of the states that has you know more providers. We have over 21. I don't know the exact number, but we have a high number in comparison to a lot of states. But a lot of states only had like one provider, you know? And I, I'm assuming this is a part of the strategy of reducing abortion access nationally. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to our initial conversation around just the crazy number of abortion restrictions that have been enacted in the last five to 10 years. There were 1,336 abortion restrictions since Roe v. Wade and a huge spike just in the last couple of years pre-Dobbs, right? And so these restrictions have often made it just very difficult for providers to continue to provide care and to comply with the restrictions to the point that many places closed. And, you know, even if Dobbs was overturned tomorrow, let's say, and we went back to the pre-row days, it's not like these clinics are going to automatically reopen right away. And we've seen that historically. For example, back in 2013, there was a bill with a number of targeted restrictions against abortion providers in Texas called HB2. And after that, a large number of abortion providers closed in Texas. And then after that was overturned in 2016, most of the places that were closed did not reopen immediately. It's not, you know, it's not like flipping a switch, you know, where you can have a full staff and hire people right away. And so there are going to be generational impacts of this decision, even if it was overturned tomorrow, which it more than likely will not be. What we're seeing is a really concentrated effort to ban abortion nationwide. That that appears to be the end goal. And the Dobbs decision, you know, was a gut punch to access. Unfortunately, I think what we're seeing on the horizon is potentially another gut punch coming soon. There's a case in Texas, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA, in which a conservative group is asserting that the FDA should never have approved mifepristone back in 2000. Mifepristone being one of the drugs in the two-drug regimen that is medication abortion. And, you know, medication abortion accounts for 54% of all abortions nationwide. There's, you know, tons of safety data. Dr. Reagan knows even better than I do just how safe and effective medication abortion is. But the lawsuit has been referred to a judge in Texas, Matthew Kismeric, who has, you know, quite the record of upholding these kinds of claims. And, if in this case he accepts the plaintiff's arguments, 
we could see a nationwide ban on medication abortion, which would just decimate the existing access we have now. So that could be coming very soon. And the judge can either rule after that based on the briefs or schedule oral arguments. So we could see, you know, another blow to access as soon as this spring. And, you know, while I don't know the outcome of that case, I think it goes back to this sort of concerted effort, whether it's the targeted restrictions that Dr. Reagan talked about, the head-on assault of Roe, and now these assaults on medication abortion, it is all sort of a coordinated effort. And it's really alarming that it's happened as quickly as it has, to your point. Right. So the thing is, is the case is happening in Texas, but because it involves the FDA, it would have national implications. Is that why? Yes, they filed in federal court. And so a decision in this case means that one judge in Texas can decide whether or not the entire country has access to Mifepristone. And if that sounds outrageous, it absolutely is. But I'm, I'm preparing your listeners for what is happening in this, in this case. Yeah. I do want to comment on what happened in this most recent election was really also unprecedented. We have never seen such a reaction that the number one or two issue for voters coming out of the polls was abortion. To see every anti-abortion ballot initiative defeated and a number of abortion protections passed through ballot initiative is really amazing. And I think it shows the power of, quite frankly, staying angry and staying engaged in this. So while we've been talking a lot about all the things that are going wrong, and it, it may get worse before it gets better, I do think that we are talking about an issue that is an 80-20, if not better, issue for Americans. By that, I mean that roughly 80% of Americans want abortion to remain legal nationwide. So we're in a situation where minority opinion may be temporarily prevailing, but it's never good when you're trying to force the minority opinion on the majority. Yeah, I think what I would like to add is just, you know, sort of a, a face to this, right? Like it's one thing to sort of look at a map and see a state turn from from pink to black and and just look at these changes over time on our interactive maps. But the reality is this is impacting people across the country every single day. And as you pointed out, Jen, you know, that a lot of the states now that have no access had very little access before. It was already really challenging. And these Bans were already impacting particularly people of color and people living in rural areas and people struggling to make ends meet. And that is bleaker now. The reality is, is that, you know, over 50 in-person providers have now closed just in the last few months since the Dobbs decision. The Society of Family Planning published research about what happened in just the first two months after the Dobbs decision and found that there were 11,000 fewer abortions than in a similar time period previously and we know what happens because of good research to people who are denied a wanted abortion, right? There's increased economic insecurity, poor physical health. People are more likely to stay in abusive relationships and their existing children are less likely to meet their developmental milestones. So this is impacting real people every day. In fact, I talked to a young woman just last week whose pregnancy was impacted by a severe fetal anomaly. And she found herself in the situation of having to travel from Florida very far away to Maryland, where I live, to receive care. And it was extremely stressful for her. And not only that, but there was a huge economic burden for her and her, her family, her husband and her child. And so while, you know, this is going to be our unfortunate new reality, we have to do everything possible to connect people to care and services while we're also doing the work to build a better structure and more political 
support for abortion access across the country for everyone. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that this is an economic issue because I remember back during the midterms, before the midterms, that whole cycle, you know, pundits kept saying, well, you know, women, people in general don't care about abortion. (laughs) You know, they care about the economy, they care about inflation. And, you know, what they kept overlooking was that abortion and access to abortion is absolutely an economic issue, right? And if they had thought about it in that terms, then maybe the forecasting would have been a little bit more accurate. But, you know, speaking of positive things and, you know, women turning out during the midterms, a lot of states have come in, and I think you've spoken to this, and tried to help. You know, some have tried to codify Roe on some level. And, you know, so states have been stepping in, and that's a positive thing as well. It's a hugely positive thing. And, you know, states like Maryland that I I didn't think could get any better have passed additional protections in the days since the Dobbs decision. A lot of states are also reacting to, you know, threats from states that are banning abortion about going after providers who are providing care in, you know, in a state where it remains legal. So offering those kinds of legal protections, you know, we've seen the Department of Justice issue a letter about the judgment, essentially, about the ability to receive medication, abortion pills through the mail. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things happening at all levels to manage and mitigate the harms of this. No one thing can do all of that, but there's, you know, a wonderful support network of people out there who are helping those that need to travel, not only with the cost of their care, but with the cost and logistics associated with traveling, for example, as Dr. Reagan said, from Florida to Maryland to get care. And that's happening, you know, in an incredible way. And that system existed before Dobbs. You know, it was built to handle all these restrictions that Dr. Reagan talked about. And we at Abortion Finder are trying to help those folks to coordinate and communicate and collaborate through our platform so that we can do an even better job of helping as many people as possible. So in addition to the great things that states are doing, there's also a network of caregivers, of practical support organizations, of abortion funds that are doing yeoman's work to make the best in this situation. But it is heartbreaking when we think about those that inevitably will be forced to remain pregnant against their will. And as Dr. Reagan said, the consequences of that are extreme. And and certainly there are economic consequences. Yeah. And I think that storytelling is a big part of this. Like when I just heard you restate again about someone having to travel from Florida to Maryland, like that's not a short track. Like that's, (laughs) you know, I think people should really stop and think about what the position that a lot of people are in, you know, not just economically, but imagine being, you know, a young person, you know, who is scared or maybe having someone who has health issues, having to travel from Florida to Maryland to get abortion care, right? That's just untenable. Absolutely. As you talked about, it's an economic issue. I read a report earlier today that something like 60% of Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck and that that's increased almost 10% during the pandemic and as inflation has risen. Imagine if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you have just enough money to put gas in your car to get to and from work, if you have just enough money to arrange for childcare when you need it for the children you have, and you work a job where taking time off means lost wages, how are you supposed to navigate all of those things and need to travel from Florida to Maryland or from Texas to Illinois to get care? And I think that's what Dr. Reagan is saying about putting a face on it. It's unacceptable that a basic part of reproductive health care would require that level of economic burden. Right. Dr. Egan, you were going to say something? Yes. Just to add that over the summer, we conducted in-depth interviews with people who sought or had abortions 
who were coming from states where abortion was banned or restricted. And our research found that abortion seekers feel completely overwhelmed with the process of arranging the increasingly complicated logistics of getting abortion care, right? Finding an appointment, getting the funding for that, navigating the travel and all of the costs. We also found that people have significant unmet needs for emotional support as they move through their journey. So abortion bans and restrictions are making people feel alone and abandoned at a time when they should be supported and affirmed. So absolutely, this is an economic issue. It's a mental health issue. It's an education issue. It's going to have longstanding impacts on people in communities, and in particular in communities that already face significant inequities currently. You know, this is something that kind of keeps me up at night. So if we could have a quick discussion about this, you know, I feel as if we are, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're far from a solution, right? Sadly. So like we said, like Roe, Roe v. Wade was not enough, right? During the years we had it, it felt like it was pretty secure. But, you know, as we've talked about, it wasn't. I really don't know what coming back from this looks like, because like we've stated, doing this at the state level is not tenable. We're probably at a legislative stalemate. I don't think there's any legislation on the table that's viable. How do we come back from this? So I think the answer is it's going to take a long time. It took a long time for an anti-abortion movement to get the kind of what they call success, what I call heartbreak, to get that through. And we're going to have to build long term for that future. To your point about storytelling, we've got to end the shame and stigma around abortion. I have heard more of my friends' abortion stories in the last six months than in the cumulative time I've known any of them. And so I think we have to start talking about the ways in which this is common and a basic part of reproductive health care, because if we, if we quote unquote, otherize it, you know, we're going to keep facing this sort of, we're going to treat it differently. It, it can't be touched and all of that. So one thing that really encourages me is that I think policymakers who support abortion access have stopped being afraid of saying the word abortion and of supporting abortion access in really meaningful ways. It doesn't mean those are going to pass in this Congress. But it is a change in where we were with some of those same folks a decade ago. And so that's my first piece. The second thing is, you know, we have to invest in the things that work right now to help as many people as we can. So as we talked about, you know, we have resources like Abortion Finder that are there to help people in the interim. And while what they are able to show may be a really difficult abortion landscape, we want to make sure it's as efficient as possible for people to get care. And then I think. To build that future, it has to be a future that doesn't just think about abortion being legal. It has to be about abortion being available to everyone for people to truly and meaningfully have access. And that means not having to jump through hoops to get care. That means training the next generation of abortion care providers. That means helping people access medication at brick and mortar pharmacies, as the FDA recently put out new guidance on. And so all of these things, I think, will change both the interim and the long term. But the truth is that, well, when it's been burned down as much as it has been, we have to start and build, you know, a new vision of what abortion access is going to look like in this country. And nothing we had before is remotely adequate. I couldn't agree more. We really have to reimagine and create a world that goes beyond Roe to one where all people, including people of color, people of lower incomes, people in rural areas, can access high quality abortion care and services without shame or stigma in their own community. 
right? You know, like we talked about earlier, the majority of Americans, I think it's something like 80% want abortion access. They want abortion to remain legal. But what we need is to normalize the idea that abortion care is the same as health care, right? And for people to not only support it, but support it loudly in full, you know, with their full throats, right? You know, to really support it, to be able to normalize it. And then, you know, maybe people will fight harder for it, more people and, you know, more openly and, and harder possibly. I think that that's 100% right. I was just going to add, I I remember when I was a young doctor in training that there was a midwife who came and spoke to us who had been doing work around the full reproductive life course. And she said, there aren't women who have abortions and women who have babies. There are the same women at different periods in their life. And I think that people in America are waking up now to this reality that, you know, the full life course, the reproductive life course of people can be complicated. And sometimes it means that they have a pregnancy that has complications that need care. And sometimes it means they have a a pregnancy that they don't feel like they have the means to continue. And sometimes it means that they continue a pregnancy and need a high level of specialized care. And we should be able to access all of those high quality services uh, without shame and stigma, again, in our own communities. That's so good. <laughs> that's that's so good. I'll have to remember that. Um, well, Dr. Reagan and Rachel Fay, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for taking time to talk about this and for all the work you're doing there. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> 